Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. I uh, open my newsletter with a discussion of what's happening in Great Britain, where the Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, is going to be resigning today. And I let me confess that uh, the main reason that I led my newsletter with this was as an excuse to include David Frum's tweet. And I just want to tell you that right up front. Uh, our guest today is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic. So, by the way, good morning, David. Good morning. Hello. Because... You had this fantastic tweet yesterday where you said, speaking of peaceful transitions of power, whatever happens next for Boris Johnson, there is literally zero chance that he will organize a mob to sack parliament or incite his supporters to try to hang the heir to the throne. Yes. (laughs) Why does that put things in perspective? So I, I appreciate that connecting all the dots for those of us on the side of the pond. Well, I have an article posting in the Atlantic later today or possibly tomorrow about this that puts this in some kind of context. But what this scandal in Britain is and how it compares to the United States, because the British are always fond of comparing Boris Johnson to Donald Trump. Yeah. Partly because of the hairdo, partly because of the coincidence of time, partly because there is some similarity between the voting base that voted for Brexit and the voting base that voted for Trump. But here, I think that the scandals involved here are really non-compatible. And to get us a sense of the gravity of the American situation, understanding what happened in Britain is really helpful in, in context because it exposes and confirms how much more trouble the United States is in. Talk to me about Boris Johnson because he, he there there is a certain Trumpian overlap. Uh, I, I cited this piece in the New York Times talking about the Boris Johnson playbook, mislead, omit, obfuscate, bluster, deny, deflect, attack, the prime minister's blueprint for dealing with a crisis almost never begins and rarely ends with simply telling the truth. So, you know, you know, Boris Johnson's, you know, character finally caught up with him. So give me some sense of, of who Boris Johnson is because it was a spectacular rise and it's certainly a spectacular fall. Well, at the risk of getting in trouble with my editors at the Atlantic, I'll read you the opening paragraph of the thing I wrote about him and what kind of scandal this is. I began the story that's going to appear later today. The head of government is caught in a series of scandals. The scandals are not necessarily important in themselves. Many of them involve purely personal misconduct. But if exposed, they would shock public opinion and threaten the leader's hold on power. So he lies and lies and lies again. He mobilizes his cabinet officers and staff to lie for him. And when the truth finally catches up to him, he tries to brazen things out. So I said, that doesn't sound like Trump. That sounds like Clinton. Yeah. (laughs) They've got a Clinton. And I don't want to diminish that order of hurricane, but I forget now whether category one is little and category five is big or the other way around. But this is a Clinton style problem. You've got a man of bad character who's selfish and self-indulgent, but fundamentally non-malicious and non-sinister. He won't restrain his appetites in office, and as a result, he has to tell a lot of lies. And then he gets other people to lie for him, and that's bad. Lying is bad, and mobilizing your colleagues to lie for you is is arguably even worse. But what didn't happen is an attack on the constitutional order of Great Britain. And Britain has lots of problems, objectively. They've got the Brexit problem. They've got Scotland threatening to declare independence. They've got huge problems of managing the Irish border in the age of Brexit. Problem, problem, problem. But they're constitutional order is in good shape. In fact, Johnson left office exactly, you know, he's got an 80-seat majority. The conservatives have an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. Johnson claimed, that's my majority. You can't fire me. And the Conservative Party said, that's not your majority. That's our majority. And if we are tired of you, you have to go. And 
48 hours of drama later, he went. So he's gotten away with this through m- most of his career. You know, none of this is breaking news. And, and and so in the past, this has worked for him. He survived scandals. He's survived being caught yeah. lying over and over again. Why was this different? What brought this to this point where his government just collapsed around him over the last 48 hours? I've met him a few times. And so I, I think I, I, let me offer this insight. The big difference in the British, a big difference between the British and American political system is the British political system is really a face-to-face system. People know each other. Um, they're often related. It's just, it's what, the Britons are often surprised to discover that American politicians just don't know each other. The, the, you know, the Speaker of the House and the um, leader of the uh, second party in the House hmm. may meet a couple of times a year and never intimately and have no previous relationship. So Britain in this face-to-face society, it's actually quite important that Boris Johnson is crazy charming. When you're in his presence, you like him, especially if you don't know him that well, um, and especially if you're not relying on him, say, to pay his child support on time. <laughs> the ex-wives yeah. probably don't love him so much. but Jeez. And the thing about him is he's, he's a fundamentally unmalicious person. He's self-indulgent, he's lazy, he's sloppy, mm-hmm. he's disorganized, he's careless, and he lies to get away with it all. But you don't have a sense with him as you do with Trump, that you're in the presence of human evil, the presence of human chaos. And maybe he's in the wrong line of work and shouldn't run the government, but that's why he got away with it for so long. Here's a story about him that was told by someone who's worked with him, and it gives an idea of a mania. So it's Boris Johnson back in the days when he's a journalist. My friend, the person who told me the story, is a prominent journalist who's hired to be master of ceremonies at some event. And Boris is the hired principal speaker. And <laughs> Boris arrives, the event is to start at seven, Boris is to speak at eight o'clock. Boris arrives in 10 minutes to eight with everybody in a state of panic. Oh my God, our speaker isn't here. And he arrives and his tuxedo is a mess and his tie is askew and his hair isn't combed. And he sits down at the tables and says to my friend, what event is this? And my friend says, I'm making it up. You know, it's the stockbrokers of London Association. Right, right, right. When do I talk? Mm. Eight o'clock, Boris. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the future of investment banking. And Boris takes out a right, right, takes out a piece of paper and writes the word fish and then the word sheep on the piece of paper and goes up and delivers the most hilarious speech based on the, these two cues. So you think, okay, wait, wait, there's more. So this guy's madly charming. He's a great spontaneous figure. <laughs> ten years later, ten years past, Boris is now a member of Parliament. My friend is again the master of ceremonies at an event. It is to start at seven, Boris is to speak at eight. Ten minutes to eight, Boris rolls in, same messy tuxedo, same messy hairdo, same stunt. Where am I? Who am I speaking to? Right, right, right. Writes the word fish, writes the word sheep on the piece of paper, goes up and delivers the same hilarious speech. So the chaos is also kind of an act. It's, it's a form of artifice. So he's not just a purely disorganized slob. And you can take yeah. a more cynical view of his character. But I think the British compare him to Trump for their political purposes. But on this side of the Atlantic, we need to understand we have a much more serious problem. Boris will be gone. The British constitutional system will lumber on. They'll be back to Brexit. Meanwhile, we have a situation where democracy itself remains on the ballot in every election. So I have a question. What did the words fish and sheep mean? (laughs) Do we have any idea? Yes, 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 we do. One of Boris Johnson's famous bits 
I, I, this is probably more than you want to know, but one of his famous bits is that the real hero of Jaws. No, I wasn't. No, I asked. Okay, the real hero of Jaws is the mayor who kept the town open despite the shark. <laughs> <laughs> and he has a serious point, which is maintaining normal life even under threat is actually a very important thing. And then again, the sheep story had to do with a sheep incident that proved the folly of the European Union. And, and by the way, I'm sure the sheep story was totally fictitious. And Boris Johnson got his start as a journalist who promulgated a lot of semi-true stories about the European Union that made the European Union look ridiculous and foolish and that built a lot of the impetus to drive Britain, um, drive, drive Britain out of the EU um, with enormous economic self-harm as a result. I think you've already answered this, but you're going back to the description of this guy who is basically, you know, chaotic and, you know, known for for, um, you know, being um, perpetually shambolic. How did he become prime minister? That doesn't seem to be an inevitable thing. I mean, I, I understand the charm and everything, but but how does someone like this come to power in a country like Britain, which which has all kinds of checks and balances and ways yeah. of vetting people before they rise to the prime ministership? I mean, that seems highly unlikely in retrospect. But so how did that happen? Well, the Conservative Party of Great Britain um, has a long history of promoting marginal and outside people to offset its own political problems. Uh, Benjamin Disraeli, um, not only the first person of Jewish descent, um, uh, I mean, he was a Christian convert, but um, he was, his father was Jewish and his, his, both his parents were Jewish and he was raised Jewish until a certain age and, um, and was very proud of his Jewish heritage and made no bones about it and had the name Disraeli. Um, And he dressed in a very flamboyant and outlandish way and had, no money and no land and no position. And he's, he becomes the leader of the Conservative Party. Um, the first person who is not acknowledged to be gay, but who was universally believed to be gay, Edward Heath, was a uh, British, um, was the leader of the Conservative Party. The first woman, Margaret Thatcher, the second woman, Theresa May. So the idea of reaching for people who are a little exotic and different from what you would expect, there is a venerable tradition of that in the Conservative Party. It's how they sort of rejuvenate themselves. Then there's the specific question of, of dealing with Brexit. Brexit cut across the existing party lines. Um, that uh, a lot of the tradition, a lot of the traditional areas of conservative strength were, of course, benefited from the European Union and were aghast to see uh, Britain contemplate leaving. And a lot of the areas that were most, most anti-EU were historic labor regions, um, especially uh, areas where um, you had a lot of People who are, you had few, few people of immigrant background, many people of uh, historically English background, uh, but that were working class. Those areas were very anti the European Union. They blamed the European Union for a lot of problems that weren't because of the European Union, but that, that became the target. And so the, the map of, and this is the way where he is, where his coalition, he's not Trump like, but his coalition is Trump like. Boris was able to ride a transition where um, the Conservative Party, which had historically drawn its strength from those economically successful parts of, of Britain, was reorienting itself to base itself on some of the least economically successful parts of Great Britain. And uh, Boris was able to ride that transition in a way that other politicians were not able to. So one more question on this before we turn to our own crisis of democracy. Uh, my colleague Sarah Longwell tweeted out uh, this morning, 
I will never stop wondering what might have happened if Trump officials had resigned loudly en masse like our pals across the pond and told the country what was going on in real time rather than leak anonymously and write books after it was all over. This, again, is one of the dramatic uh, differences between the British system and ours where, you know, Boris Johnson was brought down because members of his own cabinet, his own allies, very publicly broke with him. Nothing like that happened during the Trump years. Would that have made a difference? And, and why, are, why is the political tradition so radically different? Yeah. Well, look, it's a great point, but the analogy needs to be fine-tuned a little bit. So the president is both mm-hmm. head of government and head of state, and the president is independently elected. The prime minister is prime minister because he commands the confidence of the largest party in the House of Commons. Um, And so the fundamental question is that the House of Commons keeps meeting so long as a majority will vote supply to the state. Um, And the day that a majority ceases to vote supply to the state, the the government collapses and there has to be a new election. So when ministers resign, that's not just a symbolic act. That's not just a protest. That's a way of communicating to the country. The prime minister has lost the confidence of his own party. And that potentially means that Parliament won't vote supply to the state. Um, and that means we need a rearrangement of the government. That it itself is it's not a constitutional mechanism, but it's its a pretty formal mechanism. And that's how, by the way, yeah. that's how Tony Blair lost his job. That's how David Cameron, not with the, not with the drama, but in both Blair, Cameron, Theresa May, and, and Boris Johnson all lost their jobs in the same way. They, hadn't, they weren't defeated at the polls. They'd all won majorities. Right. Gordon Brown, I think, is the only recent prime minister to have lost his job because he lost an election. The others lost the confidence of their party and were then uh, ushered out the door. Now, the United States has a mechanism for such a thing, but it's not resignations. The the mechanism in the United States is the 25th Amendment. And the haunting question is why, after the president of the United States leads a violent uprising against the state in order to overturn an election with two weeks left in his term, the, Ford, the, the, the 25th Amendment covers a month. They, they could have removed Donald Trump from office on uh, the evening of January 6th and made Mike Pence, Pence acting president, and it would have no political consequences for the Republican Party. The, the election was over, and you know Biden was going to be president on the 20th either way. But my God, would that have redeemed the Republican Party forever? But let Pence be president for the last 14 days. Let's just talk about where we're at with the January 6th committee and the various investigations into the president. Um, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times was on CNN and uh, suggests that uh, Trump folks up until now have been most worried about the Georgia investigation. Of course, we have that Fulton County grand jury, which has been subpoenaing people who are very, very close uh, to the president and his big lie. Let's just play a little clip of this. This is Maggie Haberman on CNN. Um, How much does Donald Trump care? or How worried is he about Georgia as opposed to Department of Justice. So the line out of uh, people close to him for a while has been, no, 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 he's much more worried about Georgia uh, than he is about the Department of Justice. Now, again, I don't know whether DOJ eventually may take over this investigation. There is some speculation that could happen. Um, He certainly is concerned about Georgia. I think it is hard to believe that he's not concerned about Hmm. the Justice Department investigation. But I think Georgia is just more concrete, something he can point to. And remember, John, there's a tape of him in Georgia on a phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. That's a big piece of why it's a concern to him. And we've all heard that. And they they want to hear from people who are on that call. So, David, there's a tape down in Georgia. What, What is your sense of the state of play about whether or not Donald Trump himself will ever face criminal charges? I think we have to see that Mark Meadows gets charged first 
and Mark Meadows becomes a, a witness. He will be a crucial witness. To step back from the specifics, I think here's the state of play. People who hold power within the Republican Party, and that includes not just the formal leaders, but also the major donors, and that includes, of course, um, the Murdochs and their, their inner circle, are pretty obviously trying to create a seamless transition from Trump to DeSantis, where Trump is edged away, DeSantis is edged in, but no acknowledgement is ever made that Trump did anything more than unfortunate or mistaken. And where there's, where there's no accountability for Trump, where there's no real remorse for January 6th, there's no holding to account people like Mark, uh, Mark Meadows and the others. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it didn't happen. We slide him, thank you for your service. We slide you out. We slide the next guy in. Quiet, seamless. That's the hope. The problem is precisely right. because the hope rests on making it seamless and no accountability, they have boxed themselves into a situation where everyone is pledging that if Trump does somehow defeat this attempted replacement, um, that the party will support him just as enthusiastically as it would support DeSantis and just as enthusiastically as it did last time. So they've created a tremendous incentive and permission structure for Trump, and they forgot one thing, which is there is a primary process, and uh, and Trump's fundraising uh, potential is enormous, and Republican rank-and-file people do get a vote, and they may decide that DeSantis is just too boring. I mean, DeSantis is doing his best to be, you know, as unpleasant a person as possible. But uh, I don't know that you can win an unpleasantness contest against Donald Trump. You know, this is an interesting point. I, I, I spent some time over the last 24 hours going back for, you know, go, going back over previous front runners. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of wish casting that you know, the Ron DeSantis is the is the heir in, in waiting. But as we've seen in the past with people like, you know, um, you know, President Fred Thompson and President mm-hmm. Jeb Bush and President Wesley Clark and uh, President Gary Hart, um, it's one thing to be a, you know, a front runner in the green room. It's a very no- a different thing to become a-, a candidate. And as you point out that Ron DeSantis is doing everything he can to be unpleasant. I was talking with somebody recently, a, a-, a colleague of his who said, you know, the thing about Ron DeSantis is he doesn't just play an asshole on TV. He really is one. He's unsmiling. He's very unpleasant. And you do wonder how that translates into a national campaign. I mean, you know, you might think, well, being governor of Florida, that's the big stage. Reality is, is that compared to running for president, that's sort of like T-ball going to the major league. So we don't know how Ron DeSantis will will, will translate. And you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think it's naive to think that Republican primary voters are not going to stick with Trump. So on this question, though, of the building, there is clearly momentum or something's going on with the Department of Justice and with the Fulton County DA that seems to be at least, you know, narrowing in on the Trump inner circle. And I guess the question yeah. is, you know, how does that play out? There are people who argue do we should not, you know, charge him because the backlash would be so great. And of course, the the downside of what if he's acquitted or what if he yeah. survives, then isn't he stronger than ever? So I, yeah. I'm interested in getting your thoughts on that. This is a rule of politics and a rule of life for me, which is the problem with people who offer prudential arguments for doing the wrong thing, letting Trump walk, is they're based on predictions about the future, which are essentially unknowable. You know, we can talk as much as we want about what would be the political consequences of charging Trump, but we can't ultimately know. And maybe it will strengthen him. Maybe it will cripple him. Who can tell? Um, but what we can know is it's the wrong thing to do. So I, I think we need to we need to do the humble thing, which is do the right thing. 
Let's do the right thing and, and, and hope it will work out. But, but doing the wrong thing, you have no more ability to, to gain that uh, than to gain the effect of doing the right thing. If you do the right thing, at least you've done the right thing, even if it has negative consequences. Even if it turns out that it does incite a backlash and does strengthen Trump, at least the society has said, you know, uh, I think they hear George Costanza's voice. You know, is is organizing a violent coup against the government of the United States wrong? Is that something I should not have done? Because I, I, I assure you, if I if I had any notice, if I had any notice, I would I would you know if if if, if what Trump did in and not just on January sixth, but because as we are now saying, January sixth. Um, it wasn't a great plan, but it wasn't a completely moronic plan. There, there were a lot of predicates in place to make it work. Um, and th- that the predicates had not succeeded to that point. But I, I think the idea of Jan- what it looks like is that if we could create a mob and either intimidate Mike Pence into doing what I wanted or else get him out of the building so that I can put Charles Grassley in to get Charles Grassley to do what I want. I can at least create so much chaos and uncertainty about who's the government of the United States that I might be able to hang on to power past January 20th. Um, that was the plot. Um, and it involved more than just Donald Trump personally. Um, it, it certainly, it seems to have involved at least the acquiescence, if not the active cooperation of his chief of staff and others. So if, if, if trying to overthrow the government of the United States isn't illegal, um, that's a pretty big gap. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you follow this this Twitter thread, "Crime of the Day," where you know, um, you know, selling cheese with less than a certain amount of enzyme in the state of Wisconsin—that's a federal <laughs> crime in the U.S. Code. <laughs> you know, um, you know, not properly vaccinating your opossum—that's a crime under the U.S. Code. You would think that organizing a, a, an attempted coup d'état. Um, that actually resulted in a violent attack. Yeah, there, 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 there must that, there must be somewhere in the U.S. code where that's not okay. You wrote about uh, the Dobbs decision. Let me just read you your lead. The culture war raged most hotly from the seventies to the next centuries. Uh, the next centuries, twenties. It polarized American society, dividing men and women, rural from urban, religious from secular, Anglo Americans from more recent immigrant groups. At length. But only after a titanic constitutional struggle, the rural and religious side of the culture imposed its will on the urban and secular side. A decisive victory had been won or so it seemed. The culture war that I'm talking about is the culture war over alcohol prohibition. (laughs) So let's talk about this. How is the Dobbs decision like prohibition? And how do you think that's going to play out in our culture and political wars? Analogies are always imperfect, but here's the thing I take away, and this is a kind of maybe unduly optimistic reading. But the important thing to me about the prohibition story is that when a prohibition fell apart during the Depression um, and it was repealed in 1933, basically because the states needed the sales tax revenues from alcohol and they couldn't leave them to Al Capone any longer. So prohibitions got rid. When it's over, we didn't revert to the culture war as it existed before 1919. It was as if the society said, okay, we can't argue about this anymore. We need to work out a true compromise. And the 21st Amendment didn't say alcohol is legal. It said the, the authority to regulate alcohol returns to the states. Um, and the states can return it to their counties, as many did. Um, but we are just not going to, as a country, we are not going to argue about alcohol anymore. And that worked. And I think one of the things that was going, what has happened in Dobbs is, yeah, this is a huge win for the relatively small part of American life 
that wants to see ever more abortion restrictions. It's a big defeat for the people who want to maintain a more or less legal structure for abortion. But what we're going to see is a lot of overreach, especially in the more conservative states. And maybe in a state like Alabama or Mississippi, the overreach won't have political consequences. But I bet in Texas and Georgia, the overreach will have political consequences. I mean, when, when every in vitro fertilization clinic in a state like Georgia or Texas goes out of business, um, I think there are going to be questions asked about the politicians who drove the in vitro fertilization clinics out of business. Um, when when um, women discover that, um, they're, that that if they have a miscarriage, their doctor gets a call from the police, um, you know, how did that happen exactly? Uh, that, that That's going to have a consequence. And so what I'm hoping... I mean, my goal in all of this, my, my personal wish, is for the United States to find some kind of equilibrium where, you know, it may not be completely logical or consistent. It may vary from place to place, but an equilibrium that the country can think of so that you just make this issue not the all-consuming culture war that it has been since the 1970s. But all of the incentives would push against that kind of equilibrium, right? I mean, the 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 activists on uh, on on this issue don't want the equilibrium. They want outrage, right? They want to be able to exploit this as a wedge issue. So rather than even, and look, I, I think there's obviously an equilibrium. I mean, this is one of the great ironies of this, which we've talked about endlessly, is that most people, I think, are, have, have complicated, conflicted views on all of this. Most people are in the center. But the center appears to be completely abandoned in this debate right now. And I do wonder whether or not the Republican overreach is going to have an effect this year or whether that that overreach is is going to really be felt only after the midterms. I, and again, yeah. this is purely speculative. Yeah. I think the political effects of abortion are for sure after the midterms. I think the midterms are about food and fuel prices. They're about the gathering sense that a recession may be brewing. It's going to be very much a pocketbook election 2022, and it's going to uh, therefore probably be bad. And the timing may be wrong because some of these things may happen faster, but here's the mechanism. Here's how I see it happen. You have a cohesive minority who want one thing, and you have a disorganized majority who want many different things because the um, the non-pro-life pure side wants a spectrum of things from people say it should never be regulated in any way. It's an absolute right of a woman. It should never be questioned all the way to people say, well, you know, uh, after a certain point, there have to be some protections, and we can argue, you know. So, so the um, so there's a, a group that say ban it, ban it, ban it, and there's a group that say anywhere from ban it after 14 weeks to ban it never. So obviously, the first group has some advantages, but they've also had the advantage that, um, in especially in conservative states, the pro-life cause has been a free kick for conservative politicians, a way to prove your credentials, um, and. So in Republic, if you're in a, sta- a conservative state or even a state like Texas or Florida, in internal party politics, you can outmaneuver a rival by saying, you know, I, I want to, uh, yeah, I want no rape or incest exception. And after all, I'm not going to have to live with the political right. consequences of that since the court is there to protect me from it. You know, that speaker of the House in Mississippi who said, yes, if a 10-year-old girl gets raped by her uncle, she should bear the child. Um, uh, he, when he said that on camera. He was, he was reflecting the world in which that brought him benefit in turn, inside in the internal Republican Party politics and had no real-world political consequences. Well, post-Dobbs, those words on that video do have real-world political consequences. And when it happens in Mississippi that a 10-year-old girl is forced to bear the violent the child imposed mm. on her by the violent attack by a relative, that tape is going to resurface. And you're for this. You did this to that girl. You did it. 
sorry, not yes, her uncle or whoever committed the crime. You made the con. You you were the one who inflicted the pregnancy on her, and you thought that was a good outcome, and now you wear it, and and so a lot of things are going to come home. And again, I don't know about Mississippi, but. In Texas, in Georgia, these are highly urbanized states. Um, you know, you've got Democratic governments now in Houston and Dallas and um, Fort Worth, uh, as well, obviously, as in Austin. And in Georgia, the same way. Um, in the big cities are turning blue and the suburbs are turning blue. And uh, if the countryside keeps trying to impose on the cities these unsupportable regulations, the cities are sooner or later going to rebel. And they've got the votes and they've got the money. Well, let's talk about the gun issue as well, because it's been interesting since uh, since the, the the July Fourth massacres to, to watch how um, much of the right wing media has been trying to change the subject or, or cast this in a different light, whether it's Laura Ingram blaming it on pot, or whether it, it is this this attempt to say, well, you know, this is really no worse than the urban violence that takes place on a regular basis, and then of course. You have the the bizarre sort of conspiracy theories by Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I, I just I, I I need to slightly I'm being a little bit defensive here. Why I want to play a little soundbite for you from Marjorie Taylor Greene, that you know when we have any discussion about the 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 mental health or the future of the Republican Party, I think it is crucial to remember that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a power and a rock star in the Republican Party that she endorsed. Um, J.D. Vance for Senate, the J.D. Vance enthusiastically accept her endorsement. Um, so she is no longer a fringe figure in a Republican Party. The fringe has become the mainstream. And this is what she said about the shootings in July 4th, where she is suggesting. Here's what I have to say. I mean, two shootings on July 4th, one in a rich white neighborhood and the other at a fireworks display almost sounds like it's designed to persuade Republicans to go along with more gun control. I mean, after all, remember, we didn't see that happen at all the pride parades in the month of June, but as soon as we hit MAGA month, as soon as we hit the month that we're all celebrating, loving our country, we have shootings on July 4th. I mean, that's, oh, you know, that would sound like a conspiracy theory, right? Of course. But what's the definition of a right-wing conspiracy theory? Well, by the way, it's the news that's just six months early. Oh, God. David, normally someone like this would be put into a rubber room uh, and no. said she's in Congress. What, what what can you even say about this? Except that, again, this is a person in good standing in a Republican Party that is about to excommunicate Liz Cheney. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't sit at a forum with... You know, people explaining like, you know, once Trump leaves the scene, the Republican Party is going to be just OK. No, this is your Republican Party. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some of the things that are a little more optimistic. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene did not say Please. occasional massacres, even on the 4th of July, are the price of freedom, the price worth paying. Um, she can't she even Marjorie Taylor Greene can't face the consequences of the policy she advocates. Um that she, uh, she, at some of understands, massacres on the 4th of July are really terrible and upsetting things. And so she has to invent this fiction because if reality is true, then what kind of monster is she? And since she believes I can't be a monster, therefore I have to cre create this elaborate fiction in, in which I don't look like a monster. Because if, if the truth is the truth, then I'm a monster. And at some level, she knows that. And that's, that's why she retreats into this dream world because the real world is indicting her in everything she believes. You know, 
uh, one of the effects of the gun debate on Republicans is to make them just unbelievably stupid. Um, that, you know, yeah, algebra one, al- algebra one, solve for the variable, find the, ver- identify the variable and solve for the variable. So I'm speaking to you right now from Canada, uh, where marijuana is unfortunately in my view, but is nonetheless universally available. And in our little town of, um, in our little County, there's a very posh, marijuana cannabis store on the main street of the town of Picton population, 4,000 people. Um, and you can go and buy recreational cannabis. And I think that's unfortunate, but there it is. It's legal. You know what they don't have in our little town? <laughs> Mass shootings. <laughs> there's porn, there's video games. There are a lot of disaffected, alienated young people. There's psychotropic drugs. So when you solve for the variable, what's the difference in Canada, the United States? How is, how is Canadian culture different? Um, there's one difference. Uh, and it's not that guns don't exist here. I mean, uh, our closest friends here in the county who uh, run a, uh, a farm just bought a shotgun. Uh, because of climate change, coyotes are coming farther south. The coyotes threaten um, you know, the, the crops on the farm, and you need to be able to uh, at least scare the coyotes off and maybe pick, you know, kill them if they attack your chickens. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I think most people would understand that that's a justified use of a firearm to kill the coyote that's trying to destroy your chickens. Um, so the, you go to the hardware. So you apply for a permit, um, and what uh, when as part of the permit you supply a letter from your partner that they are unconcerned about you having a firearm in the house. The police may come by and interview the partner and say, "Are you quite okay? There's a firearm in the house." And the partner says, "Yes, it's not a problem." And then you go to the hardware store and you buy a gun, um, and you can get. Them. But uh, you can't get an AR-15 uh, or any similar kind of weapon. You can, um, there's a lot more. If you want a handgun, it's more restrictive. But if you're a rural person, you need a rifle or a shotgun to protect your crops. Um, it's, it's a pretty straightforward process. And the result is no massacres, or very few. And even though there's marijuana, even though there are disaffected young people, and even though there's porn in video games. There are so many distressing things about this whole story, but I, I think at the the institutional uh, and the systemic failure that you're seeing here, you know, we hear the argument that what we need are more good guys with the guns. Well, we had good guys with the guns in Uvalde, and we're finding out how ineffectual that was. The latest story suggest that uh, a cop on the scene actually had a chance to stop the shooter before going into the school and yet waited until he got approval from his supervisor to shoot. I mean, this is like just mind boggling that the cops who were heavily armed and had the vests on didn't even try to see whether or not the classroom doors were locked. And then, of course, we get this story out of Illinois where clearly uh, the shooter there was a, a deeply messed up individual who was uh, so, uh, shall we say, um, emotionally challenged that the police took away his knives after people reported that he was going to kill everybody. And yet somehow he was able to get the gun despite the state having red yeah. flag laws. So this, again, you want to talk about the variables. You can have the cops, you can have the laws, but if they are ineffectual, they, but ultimately they're going to be ineffectual if you have people running around with these high-powered weapons of war that will blow human bodies apart. And this is how the, the debate has been so dumbed down. I mean, that is the variable. We have these weapons that serve no other purpose other than to blow human beings apart. And the existence of these weapons and their pervasiveness means that not only Uvalde, but every small town like Uvalde has to train its police force to be highly capable hunter-killer commandos, capable of responding decisively within minutes of an onslaught. And, you know, um, 
look, in my small town, uh, we, we, you know, we have police, um, and everyone knows them and they're charming and they, they, you know, um, they help you out if you're, um, if you've got a boat problem, but obviously they're not commandos. They shouldn't have to be commandos. Um, and, the, and it's impossible that every small town can have commandos. And so the United States has created a situation where, look, the, the Uvalde police behaved very badly in all kinds of ways. But the background assumption, which is that it was realistic to expect that a town like Uvalde could have a police force that would behave well in this situation, I think that's unrealistic. They shouldn't have to be hit. This situation should arise so seldom that you don't pretend that your Uvalde police force can be the Navy SEALs able to pick off a pirate at a quarter mile distance. No, they're just local cops. Their job should be catching teenagers shoplifting from the local stores and walking them home and scaring the teenager into never doing it again. The Highland Park shooting hit so close to home for us here in Wisconsin because he drove up into the Madison area and was considering shooting, you know, having another shooting. Um, That hits very close to home. Um, also Highland Park, just looking at the pictures, looks very much like my neighboring community, Cedarburg, where, um, you know, my wife and friends were attending the July 4th parade. They've had cops up on the roof before, but, you know, in a, in a case like this, um, you, you, you do question whether or not even that sort of show of force would, would keep you safe. This is where it feels more like terrorism. Nobody else does this. It's like people, the, the American gun debate is always there. There are all these sort of sophists um, who will say you, somebody something like this will happen, and they'll propose this, uh, some modest little reform. And the sophists will say that one little modest reform wouldn't stop these other crimes. And and then and they make it sound like it's so difficult. And you know the problem of what do you do about the internet? That's genuinely difficult. That stumps everybody. Um, the, the problem of, of uh, what do you do with disaffected, alienated young men, that stumps everybody. Um, how harmful are marijuana and pornography, that stumps everybody. You know what doesn't stump anybody else on earth? How do you prevent lots of gun massacres? Everyone else has cracked this problem. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. So how do the Danes do it? How do the Dutch do it? How do the Canadians do it? How do the New Zealanders do it? How do the Germans do it? How do the French, the British, everybody? They all have cracked this problem. It's not that hard a problem. Uh, the other problems are challenging. And so this sophistical thing of, well, um, you know, we, we, we just, you know, you, you write, you know, someone write an op-ed and you're like, well, maybe if we had red flag laws, and then some sophists will explain how the red flag laws wouldn't have quite worked. Um, obviously, if you have 400 million guns in a country of 330 million people, and if many of them are um, uh, AR-15 type weapons, which um, very few people have any valid reason for, or or Glock pistols, which some people have a valid reason for, but most don't. Um, you know, and you know, lots and lots of them, and there are no rules of any kind. And you can carry them into bars and Sunday schools. Um, yeah, you're going to have a lot of massacres. Um, but you know, you know how not to have a lot of don't have so many guns, and and it's not beyond the wit of man to build a very free society, where uh, a, a society as we have here on my part of Ontario, where if you have a coyote problem, you can get a shotgun pretty easily. Well, and also the contrast, we didn't argue after 9-11 that there was nothing that we could do about terrorism because it was just the price you paid for freedom. We figured, okay, what are the dangers? What are the vulnerabilities? Let's try to fix them. But nobody went around saying that, that there was nothing we could do 
to counter the threat. This is the kind of a unique situation where we have these mass killings and an entire political party is deeply invested in saying, hey, well, you know, I don't know. Anybody got any good ideas? There's no alternative. Nothing would work. When, as you point out, we live in a world in which people have actually solved this problem over and over and over again. David Frum, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We had a lot to talk about. David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic, prolific author. Um, always uh, good to have you on the podcast, David. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.